here, and like Zechariah says, in some respects the earth lies in peace, uh, and then it talks about how all, all hell's going to break loose. And uh, this may be the last relatively peaceful Sabbath we have for a while. Uh, we don't know exactly what's going to happen after Tuesday and the so-called election, whatever that means. But there are a lot of people who are prepared to try to change whatever comes down. And this nation may not have much more peace left. I hope that we do hear that God protects us and guides us and is with us and becomes a wall of fire and a defense around us. But I do suspect that we will go through a certain amount of what the world is going through. Uh, it does say that the German or the Assyrian not the Germans, the Russians, the communists, the coalition will try to smite us on the cheek as in Egypt, but it will be very, very short and God will take care of it. So I do expect a certain amount of trouble, uh, but not enough that it endangers us in that sense, but that God will take care of us. So I read a couple articles this very morning where people are warning, if you if you still lack anything, if you need anything, you better get it in the next three days. And even some advise you better get out early Saturday morning if you need to shop, because by Saturday afternoon there may be some bare shelves, and as it goes through the weekend it'll get worse and worse because people realize, not just us, but a lot of people realize that there's trouble in the wind. So... Uh, time to batten the hatches. We'll we'll see what comes down. But I I do believe we're at the point where they're not going to let up this time. We've had a few false starts, as I've said, and it looked like things might go on and fulfill all these prophecies. But it appears this time they're determined to do the end game, to keep pushing it and pushing it, and not let off. So. Uh, I think we need to be prepared for that, even if it's not the case. We need to be prepared because uh, if this isn't it, I, I don't I don't see that they would go this far with fake diseases and masks and everything they're doing and then back off. Uh, why back off? Why not just finish the job? They've already almost destroyed our economy and that of the world, and uh, it was already on the edge. So things are looking pretty bad out there. And that's why I went where I did last week and want to continue this week uh, in Christ being baptized and John the Baptist coming ahead of him, preaching the kingdom of heaven is at hand, repent. And then Christ came along with the exact same message, uh, the kingdom of God or heaven is at hand, everybody needs to repent. Now, if you look through the Old Testament, you will not find but very, very little about the coming kingdom of God. Uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, even in the days of Christ and Herod, were all looking for a physical king to come be the king of physical Israel. And that's why Herod got so uptight. Because that's what he was looking at and expecting from what the Pharisees and others had told him. So there's very little reference to the eternal kingdom of God in the Old Testament. Uh, 
there are a few inferences that don't go into detail. Well, like Isaiah 66, where it says the new heavens and the new earth that I make. Uh, but he even talks about flesh being here at that time. So it doesn't give anyone who might have been reading from that perspective an idea that there is eternal life offered, because it hadn't been, except to a very, very few individuals, most of whom are listed in Hebrews 11. And you do find in the Psalms, here and there, David making some references to eternity. But they're somewhat vague, and not much is explained, and there's certainly no offering of an eternity in the kingdom of God uh, in the Old Testament. Even to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, it was essentially a promise of physical blessing and physical uh, abundance and power. Uh, Very little mentioned about it. Well, when Christ sent John the Baptist out, the main theme was the kingdom of heaven. And when he first began preaching, it was the kingdom of heaven. So I went through some of that and to show that the conditions for the new covenant, and he does mention in the Old Testament that he would someday offer a new covenant in the prophecies, that that would be offered. So when Jesus, to become the Christ, uh, began his teaching, It was of the New Covenant. And that's what we began to get into, the conditions of that covenant in chapter 5. And if you go through the rest of the New Testament, uh, what you find is these conditions in Matthew 5, 6, and 7 reiterated, expanded upon, uh, talked about, referred to, uh, through the rest of the teachings of Christ himself. He was expounding and repeating what he told the disciples right here. So this is the first New Testament teaching of the New Covenant, and the first time that it is offered. We didn't get very far. Uh, We saw that he gave this only to the disciples. He didn't give it to the multitudes. He just to his disciples because... It was only to them at that point that he was offering the new covenant. In the early New Testament church, which was to follow uh, with the miracle of the coming of the Holy Spirit in Acts 2 there at Pentecost. That's when the New Testament church began and they received the power to follow the new covenant. But he lays it out for them here. And they weren't converted at this point and they didn't really get it at this point. So, here we are, baptized, having hands laid on us, and received the earnest of God's Spirit to dwell in our minds. Are we getting it? We must get it, because this is our opportunity at salvation, our one and only. If we're part of God's church today, this is it. We only get one chance, and it's come now. So, I'll reiterate, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Right out of the box, he says, if you have this attitude, the kingdom of heaven is for you. 
So this is the first time he offers the kingdom of heaven to anyone. He preached about it. John the Baptist preached about it some. But here he offers it to these men. And the poor in spirit, simply as we went through, and I uh, tried to get across to us, that we need to recognize our spiritual poverty. It isn't that we're supposed to not have much of God's Spirit. That isn't what it means. But we recognize how little we have and how much we need. So if you recognize how small you are, how little you can accomplish without God's Spirit, you realize that you need a whole lot more of it to be what God wants you to be. So if you're poor, what do you do? You go and try to get more. If somebody's physically poor, well, they, do, they go several different ways. Some are physically poor and proud of it. And they don't want to be anything but poor because they can feel sorry for themselves because they're poor. But most people, when they're poor, want to find a job or two or three <laughs> to get out of poverty because it's nice to be able to buy things. It's nice to have things. So, that being said, if we're poor in spirit and we recognize our lack and our need for more godliness, more holiness, more righteousness, more of His Spirit, so that we walk in the Spirit instead of in the flesh, then we're recognizing our spiritual poverty and need, and that gets us on our knees and in this book to obtain more godliness, to obtain more holiness. So he's looking for that kind of attitude, and I think I use the publican in the center, uh, the publican thinking he had everything he needed and all the alms he gives and the good deeds he does and how wonderful he is because of it. And then the one who just stood and hung his head and said, Have mercy on me, a sinner. I, I, I am in need. I am spiritually poor. With that kind of attitude, God can begin to give you spiritual riches, because it is the acknowledgement of spiritual poverty that causes you to seek his righteousness and spiritual riches and to increase your bank account in heaven. So you seek it, and we have to realize that we are nothing. Now Christ said he could do nothing except through the Father. The reality of the matter is that everything that man does worldwide on this planet and has been since Adam and Eve is futile. As Solomon said in Ecclesiastes, all is vanity. There is nothing lasting about it. Whatever you do in your life that you think is important, that you think and you gather riches or you gather knowledge or wisdom or whatever, you're a philosopher, whatever you take pride in, that you do, all goes away when you die. It's just done. It's finished. It's over. 
A few people we might remember for a few generations because they were extremely bad or extremely good, but not much and not for long. And in what's about to happen on this earth, all that's going to be forgotten. I mean, today in this nation, we remember George Washington and Ben Franklin and some of these other deists who didn't really believe in God and weren't Christians and didn't even claim to be. But they're our founding fathers and we've looked up to them. That's all going away. It's going away in our society today because they're tearing down their statues and trying to get rid of everything, the Constitution, that they did accomplish. And when the nation goes down and it no longer exists, who's going to be bragging about how it started when it doesn't even exist anymore? It'll be gone. All of this will be totally unimportant. Men create foundations so that they might be remembered as the Ford or the Carnegie Foundation. That'll all be forgotten. It'll all be gone. Nothing you can do will last. So it's all vanity, is it not? If something does not continue on and on, what good is it? It might have been pleasurable for a little while, temporary pleasures of sin. It might have been stroked your vanity for a while. But everything that goes on on this earth, all the good deeds, all the nice things that people do, people that are kind to each other, it's all vanity. Because it's rooted in self. Why do people do these things? Because they feel better about themselves and somebody else will feel good about them and pat them on the back. It's all vanity. Because unless they are converted and have the Spirit of God, it does not create treasure in heaven. And treasure in heaven is the only thing that's going to last. It's the only thing that will last. Treasures on this earth will not, whether they be money or acts of kindness or whatever. I've used my grandmother, for example. She might have been one of the best Methodists that ever lived. She'd have somebody else swat a fly for her, I think. Well, I did swat some for her. I don't know that she didn't swat a few, but what I'm saying is she was as kind and sweet a person as ever I knew. And if anybody started bad-mouthing somebody, she would put the kibosh on it. You didn't hear her gossip or backbite or tell anything bad about anybody. And she wouldn't tolerate it in her presence. She was by far a better quote-unquote Christian than we tend to be. By far. If I was to put her up against anyone here, certainly including me, as to those qualities we would all fall short of my grandmother. We just would. Wouldn't come anywhere near close. But you know what? She's dead, and she's rotted, and it's done. And there is no reward in heaven for the attitude she had. It amounts to zero. Nothing. Because it isn't eternal. Now, I suspect in the second resurrection, 
the kind of person she had, she will, when she sees, be very accepting of God's way and probably will ultimately be in the kingdom of God. I would think that would be the case. But everything she did on this earth, no matter how good it was, counted for nothing eternally, which is what vanity is. A vain thing, something that will go away, that doesn't last. Now they began to preach here about things that are eternal, that will last forever. And once you begin to do it with God's Spirit, for God's purposes, not yours, then it counts. Then it means something. Then it's treasure in heaven. But everything prior to that is nothing. Adam and Eve did some good stuff in the garden, I suppose, for a little while. You know? But it counted for nothing as soon as they did the wrong thing. It was all wiped out. Gone. Didn't mean a thing. And we've been that way ever since. We've been acting selfishly. How was my grandmother selfish? She wanted to look good in her eyes. She wanted to look good in the eyes of others. And the Methodist preacher. And she wanted to look good in, as she understood, the eyes of God. And she didn't even know who he was. Had no clue who God really was. She mouthed the words out of the Bible, but she'd never been introduced to God. She didn't know Him. So she has no reward at this point. None. She was never called of the Father into the truth. You have to have the truth and worship God in spirit and in truth. So if you don't have the truth, you can't worship God in truth. Can't be done. And she didn't have the truth. She was there every Sunday, every Easter, every Christmas. That's not the truth. (laughs) So she didn't have the Spirit of God, having repented of Satan's religions. And we were all in the same condition where it's all futile and means nothing until it means something through God who is eternal and can give eternal life. So, to begin to do things in that spirit and attitude, we have to recognize that we are nothing and can do nothing and that motivation means a lot. If it's still selfish motivation, which we all have to one degree or another, then there's no reward. If it's spiritual motivation for the good and the purpose of God's kingdom someday, then it has value because it's eternal and will last. Then it means something. So when we recognize we don't have enough of God's Spirit, we will seek more. And that will be a benefit, because the more of His Spirit we have, the better sons and daughters of His we will be, and the closer we get to the kingdom of heaven. That's what He wants us to do, is grow and overcome and achieve that. Well, let's move on then to verse 4. Blessed are they that mourn, 
for they shall be comforted. I think this one gets skipped over a lot. We go on down to blessed are the meek and blessed are they which hunger and thirst after righteousness after brushing over they that mourn. And yet it's the second quality here that he mentions. Now, does that mean we ought to all go around in sackcloth and ashes and have our our chin on our chest and murmur about, oh, I'm so bad, things are so bad. What does it mean, they that mourn? Is it like you just lost your father, mother, brother, or sister, or your son or, ch- or daughter, and so you're mourning all the time? Because this is something that he says is a quality or an attitude that we need to be in. Do we go around hangdog because we're mourning? Let's explore this a little bit. I looked it up in the Hebrew and in the Greek. And the word mourn here essentially means to grieve, to groan, or to sigh. So, somewhere in what he just said here, there is some grieving and groaning and sighing involved, because that's what the word means. And we can't spiritualize it away. Uh, You know, there are some people that all they want to do is party and laugh, and that's to them is happiness, is partying and laughing. And others always have their dauber down, and uh, it's never a good day. And there's never anything good that goes on because they live in a negative world. So you have the Pollyannas that everything's wonderful and good, and and I just smile all the time. And those that wouldn't smile if you hit them with a bat (laughs) to try to get them to. What does it mean? Let's go to the Bible itself and see some cases here and some instances and see if we can comprehend in a larger sense what this means so that we can apply it. I don't want to brush over it. I want us to grasp it and internalize it. Now, this can be on two levels. Mourning can be personal, can be very personal. I'm mourning, well, what am I mourning for? What is the attitude and and what does it mean to me? And the other could be, on a public way, uh, mourning the whole of mankind. Since Adam and Eve sinned, (laughs) there's been a lot to mourn about. Uh, Very little peace on earth, very little good relationships, an awful lot of war. There have been a lot of things that aren't good. And we're hoping for change. Let's go to Lamentations, uh, chapter 1. This book is basically talking about the church today. He says in verse 1, How does the city sit solitary that was full of people? How has she become as a widow? Well, a widow who's lost her husband is in great mourning. So he says the church is sitting like a widow. 
sitting solitary, doesn't have her companion anymore, doesn't have her life mate anymore. We departed from God and Christ so much, and he spewed us out of his mouth and just sort of left us sitting here. So, that's something to mourn about, isn't it? The condition of the church. Let's go on down. Verse 2, she weeps sore in the night, and her tears are on her cheeks. Among all her lovers, she has none to comfort her. All her friends have dealt treacherously with her. They are become her enemies. Judah has gone into captivity because of affliction and because of great servitude. She dwells among the heathen. The church now is scattered out among the peoples of the world, dwelling among the heathen. She finds no rest, confusion, frustration, chaos, not knowing what direction to go. All her persecutors overtook her between the straits. And it's speaking of the church from Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, right here in verse 4, where it says that the church is Zion. The ways of Zion, or the church, do mourn because none come to the solemn feasts. All her gates are desolate. Church attendance has gone way down. Even in the splinters that still remain, uh, the attendance is down. People are not paying attention. The number who go to the feasts is down. All her gates are desolate. Not many people coming and going. We've been broken. Her priests sigh. There's that word. Sigh is one of the definitions of mourn. Her virgins are afflicted, and she is in bitterness. That pretty well describes the church today. All right. Should we be mourning? Mourning the circumstances that we're in. We shouldn't be happy thinking, I'm a Philadelphian, and the rest of you are Laodiceans. Poor, poor, pitiful y'all. No, that's pharisaical. That's a Pharisee of the Pharisees to say, I'm the Philadelphia, but the rest of you are the problem. Isn't that almost the same words the Pharisees used? Oh, I'm glad I'm not like you Laodiceans. Oh, excuse me, publicans. Same, same attitude, same problem. And Christ called them snakes and serpents and vipers and a lot of other good things along those lines. Is that what we are? Do we think we're Philadelphia? I don't. I've been saying for the last over 24 years now, I'm a reforming Laodicean. I don't know how much I've reformed, but I'm still working at it because I'm not everything I ought to be. By any means. So, I have to be in a state of mourning that I'm not what I should be. The church should all be mourning instead of bragging we're the only ones. They're not mourning. They're happy to be the Philadelphians. Blessed are they that mourn. We are in conditions that should be creating mourning. Let's go to Ezekiel, chapter 9. 
Verse 4. Here God is talking about the sins and the problems of Israel and how the whole nation has gone after Satan and Baal. And he said here in verse 4, Go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and set a mark upon the foreheads of the men that sigh and that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst thereof. Now, don't we read in the book of Revelation that God is going to send someone to set a seal in the foreheads of his people at the end time before all this horror is unleashed, and he will have them by name and by the seal of protection that he gives them. These are mine. These are sealed to me. Now, the beast is going to be sealing everybody in their hand and their forehead with probably a chip that allows us to buy and sell. And if you don't have that chip, you can't buy and sell because you'll be completely outside the financial system. There'll be no dollars. There'll be nothing but that chip that the banks will recognize or that the government will recognize. So you're theirs if you accept it. And God says, if you accept it, you're going to the lake of fire. That's simple. So are you going to do it in order to eat or not? The whole world will, except the few who obey God. And it's on us. They're talking about it daily now. They're working on it, getting it ready, talking about putting it in a vaccine for the covid So it's here, and it will be instituted very shortly. And you won't be able to go anywhere. You won't go to Hurricane. You won't go to St. George, because they'll have roadblocks set up. And if you don't have that chip and that vaccination, you'll either get it right there on the spot, or you'll go to a FEMA camp and be executed. That's just all there is to it. That's what they have planned. They're talking about it. That's what God is talking about here. Go through the midst of Jerusalem, which can mean the church, and it can mean in a larger sense the nation, because first the church, then the nation. So it has an application to both. But he wants his mark on us. And who does he put it on? For those that cry for all the abominations that be done in the midst of it, whether it be the church or the nation, that's mourning. Sighing is mourning. But sigh and cry, is that what we do? We talk a lot about the horrors that are going on. The millions, I think it's up to 61 million now babies that have been aborted. That's a lot of babies. Do we sigh and cry over that? Is that an abomination to us? It better be. It's not an abomination to a high percentage of the population of America. It's accepted now. What about other things that are going on? Do we see this nation coming apart over racism, over abortions, over queerdom? 
over all kinds of things that are abominable to Almighty God. And yet, our population accepts them as if they're normal now. You know, they used to talk about hanging queers on the fence in Wyoming. Maybe they got a governor that's one now, I don't know. But they do in some places. I didn't used to think of football players that way. And now in every locker room, there's one or more. It's sick. So when he says, blessed are they that mourn, he means we need to decry and hate what is going on in the church of God and in the nations of Israel and the world. And be praying, thy kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So when he says mourn, that's what he's talking about. That doesn't mean you need to go around with a sour look on your face all the time. But it is a mental attitude of not liking what is going on. Now God knows. Remember Abraham and Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah? I'm going to destroy it. Well, what if I find 50 men that are righteous? Okay. God already knew they weren't there. It wasn't too hard for him to agree on that. Okay, I'll save it if you find that many. And he kept working it down, working it down. They finally got destroyed because there weren't any there. And he got Lot out by the skin of his teeth and his wife didn't even make it. Because that's how bad it was. Well, it even says back there, I don't remember the exact quote, that Lot did not like what was going on. That he decried it, didn't want it, but yet there he was in it. So here we are in it. What do we think of it? If God were doing this same deal over again and said, if I find so many... I won't destroy this nation or this church. Well, he and his son probably went through this scenario and said the church has got to be spewed. We knew it would happen. Now we see it. Now we realize it. And out it comes. And he's doing the same thing with this nation. He's made the judgment. And now it's falling apart, and we're going to go into famine and pestilence and the sword and captivity. I love this nation. I love the beauty of the creation God gave us and the blessings He gave us in it. But I hate the way we are as a people. We're sick and selfish and have our own agendas. And they aren't God's agendas, are they? No, people are each seeking his own. And then he tries to get everybody else to agree that whatever it is he's doing must be all right. We must be merciful with one another and accepting of one another. Now, do we accept sin or do we hate it? Do we mourn for the way things are? Let's go on to Isaiah, uh, let's see, 21 here, while we're still in Ezekiel, let's go to 21. Just a few examples of what says God says we should be mourning about. Uh, 21, 
down verse 6. Sigh, therefore, you son of man, with the breaking of your loins, and with bitterness sigh before their eyes. Again, he's talking about the sins of Israel and how bad we are. And he tells Ezekiel, uh, well, verse 5, that all flesh may know that I, the Eternal, have drawn forth my sword out of his sheath. It should not return any more. <coughs> I think he drew it there in 2017 in the fall when we had darkness across the middle of the land with that eclipse. The judgment was given. And he said, I'm not going to hold back anymore. It's done. It's finished. Judgment is made. So he said to Ezekiel, sigh, and with bitterness sigh, because we see that the judgment has been given. And now we see the judgment coming day by day by day by day as it gets worse and worse. These prophecies are now being fulfilled. They're not prophecies for the future. They're prophecies for now, well, in the near future. But they've already started, so they're here. It distresses me. I hate to see it. I don't want to see millions and millions of people without... Have you ever been hungry? Ever been thirsty? Just one little day of fasting kind of gives you a vague picture. It isn't fun to go without food and water. And it isn't fun to go without it until you can't get up and you lay down as a skeleton like you had cancer having starved to death. Have you seen pictures of some of those in Dachau and so on in Germany that have been through those concentration camps and there's a big pile of people and it's just basically skin covering bones. No flesh left, no muscle left, starved to death. That's about to happen to over a hundred million Americans. Just that, famine and pestilence, disease and famine. And then a third killed with war, being shot and stabbed and blown up. That's not a very pretty picture either. There's a lot to mourn about. A lot to mourn about. And if we are in the right spiritual perspective, we're going to hate to see what is going on and why it has to happen. We're not going to like it. Isaiah 61. Here, let's start in, in verse 1. No, wait, that's not the one I... Yeah, yeah, verse 1. The Spirit of the Eternal God is upon me, because the Eternal has anointed me to preach a good, good tidings to the meek. Well, that was over in meekness. How did I skip down? 61, 2, and 3 is what I wanted. Uh he sent Isaiah to proclaim the acceptable year of the eternal and the day of vengeance uh, of our God to comfort all that mourn, to appoint to them that mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, and the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the eternal that he might be glorified. So what he's saying here 
Vengeance from God is coming, and those who mourn for what is going on will be comforted. Doesn't he tell us there that mourning will have a good effect? Let's read it again here. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Go back to the prophecy. What does it say? If you... See what is going on, and you mourn for it. All you that mourn will be comforted. Right there in the prophecy. To appoint to them that mourn in Zion, that's in the church, those that are mournful for what they see happening, to give them beauty instead of ashes. Ashes aren't very pretty. That's just burned wood. Beauty instead. The oil of joy for mourning. So if we mourn for what has transpired and what is about to, then we're going to have the oil of joy. There in Zechariah, says, You've been fasting for these things that have happened to Israel and to the church. Your fasts will be turned into feasts of joy. So here's a promise that goes a little beyond and explains more of what Christ was talking about there in Matthew 5. The garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. God will wrap us in praise and joy because we have been in heaviness for the sin that we see going on. That they might be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the eternal, that he might be glorified. So why did he plant you and me in his church? To glorify him. Why will he set the church in Zion on a hill to be a light to the world? To glorify him. Who can give eternal life? Only God. He is the only one who can do anything that is beyond vanity. That is, that lasts eternally. And he says he'll give that to us. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. But he's talking about the kingdom of heaven here. And he's even talking before them. Because when Israel, the church, is in Zion, preaching to the world, won't we have a heaviness that the world is having to go what they're going through? The plagues, the lack of rain, people being destroyed if they try to kill those to whom God has sent to tell them that he's God, that's going to be terrible. But we'll be sitting in peace, security, joy, and happiness, and plenty for having served God and for having had a heaviness in a morning for the sin we see. Won't it be... Wonderful to be in the first resurrection and rise to meet Christ and go up to the Father's throne, the sea of glass, and all the holy angels singing hallelujah and perfect peace there. Satan having been cast down and not able to influence us and our human nature will be changed and we won't even want to think a bad thought. 
wouldn't occur to us to think a bad thought. You don't even understand that. I don't either. I can't imagine my mind never having a bad thought. It's way beyond what I am capable of as a human being. I could just sit here silently for a little while, and I don't doubt that a bad thought would go through my mind. I don't know how long I have to sit here. Maybe since I'm under pressure saying that, it would be a little longer than it would normally, because I'd fight it just a little harder. But it's all there in us, isn't it? You don't go through life without some bad thoughts of some kind or another. Glory to God, that'll all be gone. And no one will ever want to hurt or harm, steal from, lie to anybody ever again. That's what he's talking about here. Trees of righteousness that God might be glorified. Let's hit a couple more here since we're doing it. Go to Hosea. Chapter 4. Uh, here, pick it up about verse 3. Therefore shall the land mourn, and every one that dwells therein shall languish. The beasts of the fields, the fowls of heaven, the fishes of the sea also shall be taken away. Read the book of Revelation, read the other prophecies. And the angels are given the power to destroy the fish in the sea and the beasts of the earth and a third of mankind at one point, And it just gets worse and worse until all but a hundred million are dead at the end of it all. That's the number Daniel gives. A hundred million out of seven and a half billion. That's not very many who survive. Yeah, that's mourning. So we mourn for the sins that cause it. And we also mourn that it has to happen to people. But God loves those people. And the only way he can get their attention is to do what he has now started doing and will get worse and worse and worse until Christ stops it. Because that's the only thing they'll listen to. God is going to send two by absolute miracle around the earth to preach in every city that God is God and that His kingdom is coming and to tell them the good news of the kingdom of God. And they will fight them tooth and toenail for three and a half years and not believe a word they say, even with plagues and death and blood in their water. They won't believe a word of it until they're killed. And then when they come up in the second resurrection, they'll have a little different attitude. Wow. Those guys were right. Look, it's beautiful around here. I just came out of the grave. I've been dead. Oh, I remember what happened to me now. Those guys told me I was going to die. And then I did. Anybody got anything else they want to tell me? They might be in a teachable mood. They might get rid of some of their vanity and realize that they're poor in spirit. They might also mourn that they didn't change their attitudes and their minds and repent. 
you know? Every once in a while, fairly often, over the years, I've had people come to me and say, did you have a speaker, I mean a, a, a listening device in our house this morning? Things you were talking about today is exactly what we were talking about at breakfast. People come around and say, what do you know? Did you preach that sermon just at me? Was that it aimed at me? They'll ask each other, was he talking about me today? Well, if the shoe fits, wear it. There's no way of knowing, is there? Nobody knows why something came to my mind and I spoke about it. So, they'll sit there and say, was he talking to me? And they get an attitude about it sometimes. They don't look at it and take it for face value as to what it is and what it meant and then do something about it if that shoe did fit them. They're more worried about how self looks and did somebody see something wrong with me and they preach that sermon at me. Not going to change anything. They just want to know if it was about them. Because that's how selfish by nature we are. Now, if God inspired it and it came from His Word, it was for everybody. And you know what? When I start preparing a sermon, I don't sit down and say, well, let's see, what did I see this week? So-and-so did such and such, and so-and-so said such and such. I'm going to get them this week. Never enters my mind. I don't do it that way. I go to God. I say, Father, what do your people need? What should I say? I don't know what to say. Show me in your word. Give me a scripture. Give me a subject. Show me what you want said. And I believe he does that. So, everything that is said here, if it comes from this word, and it's not just my opinion, if it's in here, it's for you. Yes, the sermon was for you. Always believe that. You don't have to ask yourself, was that pointed at me? Or ask somebody else, was that pointed at me? Yeah, it was. If you are a child of God, you're in His congregation, He's trying to lead you to righteousness and holiness, then everything that's said is to you. Everything that's said is to me. So, yeah. If it fits, wear it. It's that simple. We don't need to question motive or who he's talking to today. Well, then the other wasn't. it isn't always, is he talking to me? There's another side to that. I know he was talking to. And somebody comes to your mind. So, it can work a lot of different ways that don't help you. If you're blaming it on you, you're probably not really getting the point and going to do anything about it. You're just going to feel bad because the minister thinks you're not perfect. And if it's somebody else, you're not going to do anything about it because you figure it's their problem. So what good did it do to say it? The foolishness of preaching. 
if we don't take it personally, what good does it do? Now, I'm not skipping over this morning thing like I maybe have in the past and others have as well. Because it's one of the key issues. Second one he mentions right there, bang. It must have great importance. So that's why instead of me just talking about attitudes and mourning and moving on, what does God say about it? So we go to these scriptures and we see what God says about it. I got two more. Maybe belaboring the point, but I overlooked an awful lot of scriptures about it. Uh, let's go. This one, uh, Joel 1. This is talking again spiritually of the church and the nation overall. The meal offering and the drink offering is cut off from the house of the eternal. The priests, the Lord's ministers, mourn. The field is wasted. The land mourns. For the corn is wasted. The new wine is dried up. The oil languishes. So, on a spiritual level, the church is mourning because the spiritual blessings from God have been cut off and we've been separated and scattered and can't do anything. And there is a famine of the word in the land and people are starving to death spiritually. And on the other hand, now that it is coming on the nation, we have droughts and floods and hurricanes that are destroying the crops. And we have big mega corporations who are destroying the food value of any crops that are raised. So that we're eating stuff that isn't good for us and will kill us, give us cancer and heart disease and diabetes. It's a terrible, sad situation. The new wine is dried up. The oil languishes. You know what a forest fire does when it goes through the Napa Valley? Dries up the vineyards. So, not only is the food diminishing, but you can't even get drunk <laughs> to avoid thinking about it. Because it's all going away. Be ashamed, you husbandmen, and howl, you vine dressers, because all this stuff is happening. And they're proclaiming now that there's locusts in parts of the world. There's droughts and famines and floods in many parts of the world. And the crops are falling very short of normal. So when God says there's going to be famine and pestilence, He means it. It's happening. We're here. It's done. It's been pronounced. Well, that's something to mourn about. Amos 8. Just one book over. Here he's talking about a basket of summer fruit in verse 1. And that eclipse did happen in the summer. And he says he will no longer pass by them into verse 2. And there'll be howlings in that day and dead bodies in every place. You'll cast them forth with silence. It's increasing. It started and it's increasing. And then they'll be saying, when is this all going to go away? God says He won't forget their works in verse 7. 
And then in verse 8, he says, Shall not the land tremble for this, and every one mourn that dwells therein? And it shall rise up holy as a flood, and it shall be cast out and drowned as by the flood of Egypt. Killed all of Pharaoh and all his horses and all his king's men. All died right there. He says, I'll cause the sun to go down at noon, and I'll darken the earth in the clear day. That happened in July of 17. I'll turn your feasts into mourning and your songs into lamentation, a famine in the land of the word of God. And they'll faint. Bad times. A lot of mourning is ahead of our people in this nation. So let's go back to Matthew 5. I did not want to let this one pass without some emphasis because he says, Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. And I think that passage we read in Isaiah 61 sums that up very, very nicely, expands upon it some. Because where was Christ? He was here on this earth. He was in a society that was self-righteous, that was sinful, that was ungodly. Israel had departed from God long since. And he hated what he saw around him. Doesn't it say that he was a man of sorrows? That Jesus wept? Yeah, he was a man of sorrows. Why? Because of the attitude of the Pharisees. Because of the attitude of the so-called Philadelphians. Because of the attitude of Americans who say, Kill your babies. It's okay. It's your choice. Kill them. We'll kill them for you. He lived in a society that was full of sin and wretchedness and had no godliness in it, even from the religious leaders. So he said to his disciples, you need to mourn for the sin and the wretchedness that you see on this earth. And if you hate it and you love God and love righteousness and holiness instead of sin, you're going to be comforted. So the whole point of Isaiah 61 there was that if you mourn and weep because of the sin, that you will be planted in righteousness, lack of sin. And then the joy that you have will be because of lack of sin. I was violated here recently. I think I'll tell you about it. I wasn't going. I was just going to wait and see how it came out. But I think I'll tell you about it. When I was going to Colorado, someone came into my house, unplugged my computer, likely took it and copied everything on the hard drive, and brought it back and plugged it back in. Now that is a serious breach. It's fraud, it's lying, it's stealing, that which was not theirs. There were things on my computer, still are, that were privileged. By that, it means that between a pastor and the congregation, if I wrote letters to some member and 
talked about them in the letter. That's privileged information. If I talk to my lawyer or communicated with him by email, that's privileged information. Now, if it got to court, which it may, privileged information like that leads to jail term. This is serious, very serious, to slip into the doctor's office or the preacher's office and steal everything that's on their computer. It has to do with people's lives. Now, why would someone be motivated to do that? Someone here on this property, I have no doubt, who knew I was gone, who knew probably that Gloria comes in here fairly often, Charnel comes in here fairly often to take care of things. Some of you come and go in here. Nelson does with sound equipment or whatever. And I have no objection or have had to any of you coming in. If, I mean, this is the church hall. So I don't mind, haven't minded you coming in here and taking care of whatever it is you needed. Now that the horse is out of the barn, I lock my doors at night. I don't want to have to shoot anybody. But I can't. I have the wherewithal. And I keep it real handy. All over the house. But this is a breach against God Almighty. Because it's records of His people on my computer. It's things of God that are on that computer. Now, did somebody want financial information so that they could sue me or claim I made millions off this place and they wanted proof? Maybe. Well, fortunately, I don't keep any financial records on my computer. I don't bank online. I might have kept some expenses on there maybe 15 or years ago when we first started developing. I might have written some things down that are on there. But it means nothing today. So if they were looking for something to sue me for financially, sorry guys, it's not there. You know what? They probably left fingerprints. My son tells me the sheriff probably wouldn't get involved at this point. But you know what? I know pretty much what's on that computer. And if from any rumor, or from any source, or from any lawsuit, anything that I hear that was on that computer that no one else could have ever known unless they breached my computer, I can probably use in court and hang them. So I've been sitting back for a couple, three weeks, just waiting to see if something shows. And maybe it will. And I'm going to nail somebody. And if I don't, God knows exactly who went in there. God knows exactly what they did. They weren't careful enough. They weren't smart enough. Because my computer was wired in a certain way for a specific reason, and when I got back, it didn't work. Because whoever did it wired it back the way they normally would wire a computer, 
and they didn't notice that it was wired differently for some reason and put the plug back in where it normally would have been. So it didn't work. So I called my son and I said, my computer's not working. So he went through some things and then he says, well, it sounds like it. And I went to Southwest, my uh, South, the phone company, my computer provider. And they said, well, power's going to the router. Maybe it's your computer wire that goes from the router to the computer. So I told Matt, well, maybe it's a computer wire. He says, no, I've never seen one in all his experience. One of those go bad yet. But he said, maybe it's the the Internet card. And I said, well, didn't we replace that? He says, oh, yeah, we did replace that. It went bad. We put in a new Internet card, and we put it in a different place. And it's plugged in differently than a normal computer. And he says, now I'll tell you the bad news. No one had any reason to unplug your computer unless they were trying to steal the information off your hard drive. Wouldn't be any other reason. Nobody has any reason to go in there in my office and mess with my computer. doesn't go through the sound system over here. The router is the only thing that's used here in the sound system. My computer's not. So this is thievery on the highest order that has occurred in the last few weeks. I got absolute proof that it's been messed with. Absolute proof that it's been messed with. Now I'm going to watch. And I'm calling on God, who knows exactly what happened, to take care of it. And if you are in the right attitude, maybe you'll pray to God with me. Because this is a terrible breach by a terrible human being or beings who are liars and thieves and did it for whatever purposes they have. But I'll guarantee you it was not to help. It wasn't to help me. We had a man who set up a corporation at one point in order to manage the affairs of the church. He was trying to take over. Now, it was told me that, oh, he was just trying to aid and assist and help. You don't aid and assist and help by taking over. That's what Miriam and Aaron tried to do. Take over for Moses. Because God hears us too. Want leprosy? Go for it. Just go for it. There's a thief somewhere on this property. I don't know whether they're sitting in a room here with us or whether it's some of our neighbors. But them stealing the leases, stealing the rent, and lying in court and saying, I've done things I didn't do, like selling land to somebody. Didn't do it. Haven't done it. Not even a wink-wink deal. Hadn't happened. Not going to happen. There's liars among us somewhere. 
God have mercy on their souls when he gets done with them. I'm mourning about this. It bothers me that somebody would do that. It really does. I feel violated that they would take such highly personal, there's some personal information in there. They don't care. I want it. My privacy, your privacy, apparently doesn't mean a thing to them. Doesn't mean a thing to them because they want what they want for whatever their purposes are. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay. But I do mourn that someone would have such presumption, such gall, such unfeeling caring about you and me that they would do such a thing. Something to mourn about. Those who mourn will be comforted by God. Let's not overlook this one statement that is so easy to pass by and move on from. For God is in heaven, and he will bless those who mourn and comfort them and strengthen them and make them trees of righteousness. And those that perpetrate the sins are going to find they have a very, very different fate.